we talk with electrical engineer and fellow podcaster John Chigi about Citizens Band Radio, Ladder Logic, and his desire to explain technical concepts in this episode of the Engineering Commons. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 67, Pragmatic, October 23rd, 2014. So, Jeff, what made you decide to get into podcasting? Well, you know, I wasn't real sure that I was going to be in podcasting. I thought that uh, there were questions about engineering, you know, sort of the philosophy of engineering and, and why certain people seem to be better engineers than others and why sometimes poor engineers made great managers and why certain engineers seem to climb, you know, uh, take project after project and be successful and other engineers didn't. And so, you know, these things sort of rattled around in my brain and I thought, you know, no one's talking about that. Uh, and I had kind of thought about, well, maybe a podcast would be the way to start that conversation. When I happened to cross, uh, actually it was Chris Gamble's blog. And uh, then I started listening to his podcast. And then one day on Twitter, he said, is anybody interested in a podcast about the philosophy of engineering? And I said, well, this sounds interesting. And I, I tweeted back and said, how can I help? And by that, I thought he meant, you know, I need somebody to put together show notes or line up guests. And he said, oh, do you want to do a podcast? I said, okay, we can do that. And he said, well, here's how uh, Dave and I do it. So let's try one. And all of a sudden, I was a podcaster. Yeah, and now you're just rolling in that, you know, fat stacks of internet money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the, uh, the pay isn't great, but it is uh, definitely a, a labor of love. Yeah, yeah. Similar story here. You guys put out the call for new co-hosts when Chris left the show and threw my hat into the ring and said, "What's the worst that can happen? Some people hate me on the internet." <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Well, I, I and I have to yeah. say that that I wasn't sure initially how it was going to work with four co-hosts. That seemed like an awful lot of people uh, chattering away at the same time. Uh, but actually, it's worked out well. I. I I enjoyed the variety of viewpoints. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We seem to have found a nice balance. Um, our guest tonight is a, a fellow podcaster as well. Um, he does not have three other co-hosts. He's a solo podcaster for the most part. Um, he's a podcaster and engineer, Mr. John Chigi. John studied electrical engineering at Central Queensland University in Australia, and he's worked in several different industries, including RF hardware, systems engineering, and the oil and gas industry. He also runs the weekly podcast, Pragmatic, which you should be listening to if you're not, uh, where he talks about whatever topic happens to interest him that week, uh, you know, things like Stuxnet, workplace safety, app development, gambling machines, or uh, coffee. And he also runs and writes for his own site, Tech Distortion. So, John, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be here. Glad you could make it. <laughs> Glad we could work around the time zone difference. Yeah, I know. I guess I'm in a bit of a crazy time zone. That's okay. I uh, I can freely admit that. It's fine. <laughs> well, we appreciate the effort. Is it still uh, a time zone at that point, or is it just a hemisphere? Yeah, well, the, um, yeah, I don't know. Well, uh, good question. Uh, all I know is that, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's okay. It's two in the morning here, but that's fine. <laughs> wow. Coffee is your friend. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Certainly my best friend right now. Here we go. Yes. Still running the AeroPress? <laughs> Absolutely. Wouldn't do it any other way. Oh, yeah. That's that's one of my favorite ways to make it, too. Yeah. 
That's amazing that something yeah. so so cost effective is is uh, such such good at uh, doing that that specific task. Yeah. yeah. When you compare it's really and contrast, just a plunger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is just a it's a plastic plunger. But when you tell it to someone that way, they're, they're never going to buy it. Oh, it's a plastic plunger. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. it's $30 well spent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so to ask you our standard warm-up question, mm-hmm. uh, we you know all our guests get asked, "What got you into engineering?" Okay, well, I um, when I was younger, and when I say younger, I mean you know like thirteen, fourteen years old. Uh, I'd, I'd always been into pulling things apart, and much to my mother's frustration, um, you know, it was the usual things like barometers and clocks, and yeah, you know, things like that. Old TV, things like that. Anyway, and eventually, um, of course, I struggled to put them back together again. And in the cases where I tried, they didn't seem to work very well afterwards. But that's okay. It was it was all all lots of fun. But the thing, the one thing that really got me into engineering, specifically electrical engineering, was uh, CB radio. Uh, I had friends at school that were into CB radio and um, went around to their place one afternoon after school and and saw them talking on this thing to people. Um, around the city and uh, around different parts of the country because uh, it was uh, 27 megahertz CB radio. So when the uh, ionospher- ionospheric propagation was in, they were able to, uh, or skip if you prefer, they were able to talk to um, different places around Australia and I thought that was really cool. So I got into CB radio and um, after that, it was uh, just a very gradual progression and I got interested in engineering through that. So, then I found myself doing a university degree in uh, electrical engineering and uh, yeah, here I am now. So, yeah. I think that makes you your second guest who got into engineering through ham radio. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I, I guess I, I didn't mention in there, I glossed over the fact that I transitioned into uh, amateur radio, which I only talked about recently, actually, on Pragmatic. And uh, when I Yeah, that was a good episode. I really enjoyed that one. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, it was awesome, actually, getting into amateur radio because you can really spread your wings and do some much more exciting stuff. For CB radio, you're sort of hamstrung, but uh, hamstrung. <laughs> I just realized. <laughs> 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 anyway, so yeah, no, it's 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 been wonderful in amateur radio, and uh, it's sort of been a shame for me that it's de- on the decline as a hobby. And uh, I mean, I understand mm-hmm. why, uh, but yeah, it, it was still looked back on with very fond memories. So, did that uh, drive your focus in school? Did you focus on RF and uh, radio design? Yeah, I did actually, um, as much as I could. Problem that I had was that I I really didn't have. Um, I didn't really didn't have a lot of money sort of behind me, uh, and I was sort of stuck going to the university that I, in the same city that I grew up in, uh, Central Queensland University in Rockhampton, and a lot of universities tend. To, well, my experience is that most a lot of universities will will tend to cater for their local audience. So, you know, the area that I live in, for example, is very heavy on an, uh, on heavy industrial and mining. Mm-hmm. We have a major railway hub in our area where they do a lot of maintenance on the rolling stock. And that's that's wonderful, you know, I guess, you know, for jobs and everything. But it wasn't something I was really all that interested in. I mean, certainly there was the electrification of the rail system that had happened uh, during, well, it was probably mid to late 80s uh, in my neck of the woods. And I guess that was some overlap with electrical because you had some, you know, AC traction stuff going on, which was, yeah, sort of interesting. But, uh, and of course, railway comms and everything, which... Again, sort of interesting, but there was a lot of um, there was a lot of 
uh, focus on areas that were not RF, I guess is what I'm saying. So, I took as many subjects as I could in that area, but my options were limited. So, I sort of had to push through that in the early stages of my career with some success and and then the wheel sort of fell off that, unfortunately. Yeah. So, 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 what was your attempt to uh, uh, to get into the RF industry? Well, I part of the university degree was work doing uh, co-op work placements. Well, we call them co-op. Some people call them sandwich courses. Some people call them um, the well. Anyway, irrespective, irrespective of what you want to call them, I guess it's about doing a university degree. But you do two years, let's say, of a four year degree. Then you mm-hmm. spend six months working full-time uh, for a company as a uh, as an intern, essentially. And then you go back to university for another six to 12 months. Then you do another six-month placement. So, the idea is that you your degree will take a bit longer, but sandwiched during the course of your degree, you have periods of work placements. And mm-hmm. those work placements, therefore, you graduate not just with the degree, but you also graduate with a year's worth of experience, which puts you, in theory, at an advantage to everyone else that just does the standard degree, which only required 12 weeks of um, vacation experience. So, I sort of went with that degree and one of the things that our university was doing was they were doing exchange programs and the exchange program I got involved with was with the University of Calgary. So, I actually went over to University of, um, of Calgary and worked for Nortel and mm-hmm. I, couldn't get into, I couldn't get into RF design directly because they didn't have vacancies and, well, again, you know, I refer you to my previous comments regarding, you know, the lack of depth in my university's uh, right. um, capacity in terms of, you know, RF hardware design, let's say. Anyway, turns out they, uh, they had an opening in the dependability group, so I did some statistical modeling and failure, um, failure analysis for a few years. Went back there after I graduated and uh, then did a shift across into the RF design department. So, it was all going really great and then Nortel's stock went into the town, went, uh, went <laughs> south and, uh, and so did I. Right. So, that was that. Right. Well, it, it seems like there's so much stuff you could do with RF now, you know, on a railway mm. where that, that in, in past years you couldn't do, but, but keeping track of the individual cars and, and communicating between vehicles and stuff, it seems like there might be a lot of opportunities now that weren't there, say, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I'd say so. I haven't got too much specific knowledge of uh, of the idea of bus tracking, for example, or um, of railway car um, train tracking. But my understanding is a lot of the stuff that they do would be uh, is is off the shelf insofar as uh, some. I, I suppose some of them would have their own dedicated channels for doing that. But my understanding is a lot of them are a GPS slash three um, G or four G unit that they simply plug into the that simply reports back their position periodically. Oh, okay. And I'm not sure how many of them are, uh, what sort of the network setups, but that's that's what my I, I'm led to believe in any case. But still, okay. setting them up would be interesting. And this is one of the things that I found, to be honest, is that there's a move towards standardization because doing custom design for you know board layouts and, and ASICs and everything is is very expensive. And there's a lot of issues, as I'm sure you know some of you guys have come across, is that it's always the little things like you'll you'll do a you know a board layout for some purpose and it turns out that you know the the impedance isn't quite right on a set of these tracks and you're trying to trying to match these and balance these because it's going to be so much you know with, with a bunch of capacitors and so on like chip capacitors and inductors and trying to make it work you know because you know that respinning that board is going to take 8 weeks and or whatever and cost a lot of money and you know mm-hmm. you end up with this hacked barnacled board that you know sort of mostly works and you're like geez, I wish I could just spin the board one more time but you know, and you know what I mean. So 
getting right. it on a chip that someone else has done all that hard work, you just plonk the chip down and away you go. There's a big attraction to that. And and I found that those sorts of jobs are highly specialized and more difficult to come across. And, and it's more about integration these days of than, than the actual down to the nitty gritty, I'm going to lay out a board kind of thing. Well, that's what I saw anyway. Yeah, but I but I, I think that's true across all the industries. You know, if you look at all the engineering jobs, the number of people that are actually doing design work, at least the numbers I've seen is like in the single digits, uh, oh, percent sure. wise. They're mm-hmm. just there. There aren't the that many pe- there there aren't that many engineers that get the opportunity to actually do the ex- what I consider the exciting part of engineering. Um, yeah, yeah, which know, is the right. designing and 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 most of us, if we want to earn a living at it. You know, we're doing the the project coordination and the tracking and the quality assurance and the documentation and you know all the other stuff that goes with getting a product out the door. Absolutely, and just as important, you know, obviously, uh, I, I might add, all that stuff is just as important. Oh yeah, I wouldn't want to do those jobs, but I respect the hell out of the people who do. <laughs> I kind of yeah. wonder if even even at those highly integrated component systems, you know, it it still is a systems integration. It's not nobody's solving for you know, physics level transistor behavior anymore, or uh, they make it small enough to the point that you don't have to worry about a lot of the T line and, and uh, parasitic issues that you might have to do if you were doing a lot of that stuff at the board level. Yeah. Historically. Oh, that's true. That's true. Absolutely. And even when you're building an ASIC now, for example, you'll, you'll buy a licensed uh, uh, block and this this logic block and you just plonk it down, you know, and, and, and away you go. And and all the low-level details about manufacturers handled by a chip fab and, you know, that's that. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Absolutely right. At some point, everyone became integrators. Yeah, I guess it's all about the level at which you're integrating these days. But uh, it just seems to be getting higher and higher level and the specialities of the, the lower level components are becoming more and more specialized and harder to get into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, how, how long were you in the RF industry um, before you moved on to uh, greener pastures, for lack of a better word? <laughs> well, honestly, I, I include my entire time at Nortel as being in on RF past. past pastures because well I, I like to think of my career that way the truth is though that it was really only about six months and mm-hmm. um like actually messing with the rf hardware and the, the even more frustrating part of that was that when nortel canned a bunch of projects and canned a bunch of people the project i was working on was canned as well so i never saw the light of day but um yeah, there was still a VCO in there that I played with, and uh, some S matching I was doing, and on network analyzer it was yeah, it was fun, but um, oh well. Uh, so then after that, yes, I, I moved on and uh, I switched. I, I then started doing work. It sort of was in the RF space, but sort of further out up in the in the data processing end, uh, and that was on a military project for the Australian military. Uh, was working for Boeing though, so American company, but Australian project in Australia, which is a you know, an interesting combination. But anyway, so. Uh, and that was a system engineering role, and uh, one of those ones that I always worry how much I should say, otherwise special like, special ops might show up and take me out. <laughs> the anyway. black suit guys start knocking on your door. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, trying to avoid that. Yeah, <laughs> we always say it's not a podcast unless we violated an ITAR agreement. <laughs> okay, now you're talking. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I did that for a couple of years working for Boeing. And it was one of those things that I, I thought initially going into something that was all classified and having to get some like 
uh, you know, security clearance, like secret, top secret, whatever the heck I was, which again, I won't admit, but whatever. The point is that getting that clearance <laughs> and going through all that, I thought, this is going to be really cool. I'm going to find some really cool, interesting stuff. And it's, wow, this is really boring a lot of and paperwork. tedious <laughs> and there's so much red tape and oh my goodness. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I was- del- Cough twice if you had a license to kill. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was completely not what I expected, and um, yeah, I was very disappointed to be honest uh, in that in that role. It was sort of the technical side of it was fine. I just I just thought it'd be more more exciting than it was. So because uh, all the dramatizations you see on television, mm-hmm. it's you know, so much rubbish. But anyway, yeah, yeah, <laughs> technology that could change anything falls into the wrong hands and. Yeah. You're just an engineer, but next thing you know, you're running with a gun on the top of a train to get the, the terrorist. And <laughs> yeah, well, that does happen. Something like that, yeah. But yeah, it's just one of those things that you have this very, you have a preconceived notion, and then you go in there and you and you find it's nothing at all like you thought, and and that's what it was for me. So I did that for a few years, and then I jumped over into control systems, and that and that's really where my career changed. It was at that moment. And that was in 2003. So that's time flies and you're having fun. That was eleven. Ago, yeah. oh, wow, eleven years ago. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a little ways back. And uh, when you're doing controls work in Brisbane, uh, what sort of industries are you supporting? Well, uh, the really th- domestic, international. Uh, well, we did some. Inter- well, okay, I've got to be careful with the word international. I um, technically uh, we did some projects for Papua New Guinea and Fiji. So technically, they were international, but they're really just mm-hmm. islands off the shoreline. So, you know. Um, when I think international, you know, having lived in North America for like two and a half years when I was working with Nortel, it was the sort of thing that I, you know, I think of that as international. So, technically international, yes, not a great deal and not really that international. Maybe I'll put it that way. So, it was all local scale for the vast majority of it. And the company that I worked for, it was it was wonderful because they, were, they had a finger in every pie and they had to to survive because the volume of work was not such that you could specialize just in mining or you could specialize just in water treatment. You, you know, you had to be involved in, you know, food and beverage, pharmaceutical, all these different, you know, aspects that had control systems, all these different industries. You had to have some involvement with them. Otherwise, you wouldn't have enough work to sustain your company. So... It was great for me because it meant that I could go and get exposure to all of these different industries and, and learn a lot of the different rules and regulations. And it was fantastic. I learned so much in that six and a half years I worked there. Mm-hmm. And so when people talk about controls, they often, at least in my mind, there are a couple of areas they may be talking about. Some people are talking about you know feedback control theory where you're, you're doing sort of higher mathematics and other people are talking about implementing things like programmable logic controllers, PLCs. Uh, Were you in one of those uh, realms? Uh, Yeah, the second one predominantly. So every now and then you'd get to do something a little bit more detailed, like you'd actually go to the trouble of mapping the flow characteristics of a valve, let's say, that you were trying to tune and it just was not playing ball. And Mm -hmm. most of the time, though, you would just rely on the standard programmable logic controllers or you know, remote telemetry units or oh, DCS, uh, distributed, oh God, distributed control systems, you know. Right. So, I, I just keep calling them RTUs, PLCs, DCSs, you know what I mean? So, those, right. you know, the black box in the, in the, in the, uh, in the switchboard. Anyway, and it's, um, uh, believe me, that, that was, in, that's, yeah, interesting, very interesting, e- even though, 
I don't know. I guess I like the fact that you know, you're down there dealing with wiring everything in and you're dealing with all the terminals and the cabling and all the, all the different sensors. I mean, particularly on machinery is really cool. Uh, mm-hmm. All the different uh, all, all interfacing, the hydraulic systems and uh, servo motors and all that. Very, very cool stuff. But uh, the higher level control theory and so on was something that you generally didn't have to, have to mess with. So predominantly more in the PLC side and the implementation at that, at that level. So, right, and, and were you dealing with a particular manufacturer? I mean, some people specialized in in you know Allen Bradley controllers or Omron controllers mm. or whatever. Omron, oh, I feel sorry for them, but yeah, okay, um, I was dealing <laughs> with yeah. Oh god, there goes our sponsorship money. Oh no, sorry. I mean, uh, I love Omron. Yes, thumbs up. Uh, no, ser- no, ser- okay, true story though. I was working on a water treatment plant like was it eight years ago and they had CPUs on site, Omron CPUs that did not do floating point math. I mean, seriously, eight years ago and I didn't do floating point. What? Anyway, all right. <laughs> I mean, I knew. I mean, I, I knew all the tricks for doing, you know, doing floating point math in a in a you know fixed point CPU and everything. Sure, but why am I doing this? Why do I have to, to do this? It. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. What century is this? And I'm looking at the calendar. I mean, yeah, it's definitely the all right. <clears throat> but anyway, so yeah, I uh, predominantly worked with Siemens because we were a Siemens distributor. But uh, the work okay. at Siemens was sort of. Um, well, sorry, the work that was Siemens-specific was thinning out when I was there. So, what we did is uh, we started to diversify a little bit and we sw- um, added on Schneider. So, we started doing some Schneider work, predominantly uh, premium, Modicon premiums and a few of the quantum, a few quantums, but uh, we did a few major projects using the premiums and uh, that was programming in Unity Pro and that was frustrating as heck. I actually came to pr- prefer Somatic Manager and programming in Siemens PLCs for, for quite a while, actually, but... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I, being a pro, like I said before, across so many different industries and so many different companies that we were doing support for, uh, yes, I did do some work in Alan Bradley on, on some control logics and even some older um, uh, RS logics uh, five hundred series, and uh, uh, and of course, as I said, Omrons and, and so on and so forth. So as well as the SCADA as well. So we did both pieces of it. Right, and uh, for our listeners, PLC design is a huge part of electrical engineering. And it's something that really is rarely talked about at the academic level. Uh, are the programming environments in any way procedural code? Or are they still ladder logic based? I suppose it depends, right? Yeah, it's very client dependent. So you'll have some clients. When I was working there, that everyone, I swear to God, everyone thinks they're a programmer. You know, <laughs> and these, it's true. You go to the site and they say. All of our code is written in ladder, and you know, obvious question. Well, why is that? Uh, and the answers vary. Answers were usually falling under two categories. One, it came that way when we bought it, uh, and two, I am a programmer. And you look at this 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 person. You say, how much programming have you done? And they say, well, you know, if a machine breaks, I get in there and I have a look at the ladders and I can understand it. Okay, so you sort of write, hey, you written the code though. Yeah, well, that's sort of like writing the code. You bury your you know, <laughs> face in your hands at that point and say, right, okay. So, you'd end up delivering and you perpetuate. You continue to do it because then they write into the specification. So, it's like, you know, the code you deliver must be in ladder. And you're like, oh, goody, roll your eyes and get cracking. Um, more com- more <laughs> commonly at the moment, you've got FBDs. They're becoming a bit more, you know, common. I have a love-hate relationship with FBDs, uh, but never mind that. And, uh, and fortunately, there are some more forward-thinking places that are now doing procedural 
code. So stuff that's actually, you know, in some cases actually structured, which is good. Are they still proprietary languages? Well, the good thing about Ladder and FBD is that you, although the tools vary and the blocks may visually differ from package to package, if they're following the IEC standards, they are relatively interchangeable. Mm -hmm. But once you go to the higher level languages, the controller is the, sorry, the code is far less uh, specified and therefore becomes far more customized based on the brand which, you know, is a drawback, I suppose. But then a lot of people, I've actually met young control system engineers um, that have only had a couple of years of experience that have never programmed in Ladder. And I'm like, okay, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, we should probably, for those uh, listeners who are not familiar with this type of programming, back up just a little bit and give them some, some uh, background information. So my understanding sure. is that, uh, the, so the Ladder logic came from an era before there were programmable logic controllers and, and things were programmed with mechanical relays. And yes. so someone would draw out the schematic for this and each of the relays, uh, you'd have positive voltage on one side and negative voltage to the, uh, say positive voltage to the left, negative voltage to the right. And you'd draw a line across and uh, put in your relays, which were either normally open or normally closed. And then that would feed down to the next row where you were doing something. And, and so you had what looked like a big ladder with rungs and you'd have your either normally opened or normally closed relays on each of these rungs. And that was how you designed something was you drew out these schematics and that was how it got the name ladder logic. And that eventually got transferred over to software programs that essentially did the same thing. Is that essentially right? Yep. That is, that is it. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Well, very, I couldn't have, couldn't have described it better. I get lucky every once in a while. I never knew the history. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I'll stay quiet because I don't know anything about it. Well, I'll tell right, you one it? thing that I thought was crazy is I went, we did a, uh, a work for a company that, that relocated because uh, our state was doing some tax incentives for companies to move their businesses to uh, to Queensland. And and that's, that's, you know, that's all well and good. But this company had an old control system that was a mixture of uh, different PLCs. But more interestingly for me, was they had a bunch of panels that were relay logic, like actual genuine 1960s quality, um, you know, <laughs> panels. I'd never seen these things before. I'd seen um, some analog controls. I, I did a, an old turbine that was built in the 50s, but I'd never seen a panel that took up the entire wall of a room. It would have been, oh gosh, how many feet? Probably 30, 30 feet long. This thing was just, you know, reasonable size, I guess. Anyway, mm-hmm. and- all on the front of it, you had these uh, LED indicators and the black uh, paint between them to show the path. It was it was showing the um, overhead ductwork. So there's an extraction fan, and they were extracting fibers out of the fiber bins, and then they were you know s- <clears throat> stitching them together in the uh, in the cross stitcher lapper, and that was then producing essentially a variable depth uh, matting bed that was then uh, inserted into uh, into a case and that became a, uh, a kind of a mattress, I guess. Um, and also other configurations for um, insulation and, and so on and so forth. So the extraction fans had a bunch of ducts and the ducts were suspended from the ceiling and the relay panel, all it took care of was which bin, because there were multiple bins for different kinds of fibers and colors and so on. And it was uh, selecting a bunch of diverter gates that would then select which of the overhead uh, ductwork to use. And it was all done in relay logic. So they pulled this thing apart, shipped it up on, a, on the back of a truck, reassembled it and had no idea how to 
put it back together again. So, (laughs) that was our job. We were brought in when they were scratching their head saying, yeah, it used to work when we were in Melbourne and now it doesn't anymore. So, I was looking at this panel and I'm like, I had, I mean, sure, yeah, I I saw the diagrams and and all the drawings and they, yep, that was ladder logic all right, but- I'm looking at this panel and I just couldn't make you know, heads or tails of it. It was just absolutely unbelievable. There were wires everywhere, relays hanging out. And I mean, had I been born 20 years earlier, that would have been my bread and butter. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Did Did you ever get it working? Mm. We as a company did. I personally did not. No. And uh, <laughs> okay. no, no, I can't. I won't put my hand well, up and claim that one. Well, one of the things I always liked about those systems and, and, uh, I came to engineer. I came into engineering about the time those were going out of style. But if you ever stood in front of one of those and listened, you just hear the clicking of these relays, and it was oh, amazing. It was this chatter of relays in the background. Yeah. yeah, it's a beautiful sound, isn't it? Hearing these things, it would be soothing. No, oh, it was. Br- it was really was a beautiful sound. It, it's this. This. I mean, obviously they weren't, you know, going to go off in unison and, and, and click out some kind of a tune, but you know, it still sounded absolutely gorgeous. I you know, don't know how to describe it either, but it was pretty amazing. I suppose I can I, I can only hear the countdown to the eventual failure of one of those devices. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Oh dear. Solid state relays all the way. Right. Right. So so John, you mentioned somewhere in the description too. So I just to continue on. You mentioned FBD, which I believe is function block diagram. Yes, that's right. So so how did how does that relate to ladder logic and and how does that get you know where is that on the on the spectrum between ladder logic and procedural code well okay fbd is a visualization of just essentially of boolean uh logic so rather than in in a ladder the problem is that with relays and with coils representing ands and ors and nots and all that is um I guess it's relatively straightforward. Oh, I say that now. I know what it looks <laughs> like. But anyway, rather than go into a description of what that looks like in ladder logic, uh, in a in FBD, it would look far more like a traditional Boolean logic block where you would have uh, a box with uh, in a certain shape that looks like an, an OR block. Uh, how do you describe what an OR block looks like just using words? But anyway, it's curvy bit on one end and a, you know what I mean, whatever. The point is mm-hmm. that FBD is meant to resemble uh, standard Boolean logic that you would learn at uh, at school. And okay. some people prefer that function block diagram whereby the output of the, like these four inputs go into an OR block that goes, the output of that goes into an AND block and then that drives this thing. And they prefer that visualization because from a, a logical point of view, uh, that's easy for some people to process. My issue with it though, right. relies more with the canvas and you're given a, a, a variable size, well, depending on the, the brand and the software, mm-hmm. you have a, some of them have fixed width canvas, some have a, uh, a variable width canvas, variable size canvas. Uh, maximum size is much bigger than the screen. So let's say your screen is whatever size it is and your canvas is 10 times that size that you could actually put bits of logic on, which means you've got to scroll up and down, left and right to fit all of it on the screen. Whereas traditionally with ladder, the ladder ends up being the width of the screen and you can have a scroll up and down. 
So, well, why does that matter? And what matters is, is when you're actually programming this thing, trying to visualize where all of the code is when it's scattered all over the screen. And it's not broken down into little objects unless, of course, you program it that way, which a lot of people don't. Uh, mm-hmm. then you, know, you can't just say, right, well, I've written and tested this object. I know that that works, so I'll leave that alone. I don't need to monitor it right now. I can see the input and output and I'm all fine. But this thing's scattered all over an enormous canvas that you can only see a small window of. And that, that creates problems. The other problem that you've got is the uh, position. The execution order of these things is typically uh, uh, left to right, top to bottom, as, as we would read in Western culture. And mm-hmm. what that means is that if I get a logic block and I drag it two pixels, let's say, up, just by accident, that ch- can change its order of execution. So, it'll be evaluated <laughs> in a different- Yeah, it, this seriously. So, what you'll do is you'll say, okay, well, I need to make some more space in the bottom right here. So, I'll just drag this bit up there and then suddenly your code is broken because you've got something that's scan cycle dependent and you've just changed the damn order of execution. So, yeah. and that is such a nightmare to debug. It's not funny. And I've spent countless hours debugging stuff like that enough to grow to hate it. <laughs> but anyway, it sounds, it sounds it like right it would now. be a configuration management issue too. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because every graphical change becomes a code version change. Technically, that's that's the other issue. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. So yeah, I hate I hate FBD and all these people that come out and say, well, it's better than ladder logic. I'm like, well, how exactly? I mean. Once you understand how ladder logic goes together, <laughs> the rules that are, that that are forced upon you actually help you. And this is the other problem that I have is with higher level languages. The higher level language you go, the more abstraction you get. So if there's a good set of rules, fine. But so often things like C and C++ and all that, honestly, you can make a horrendous mess if you don't follow a set of standards. You know, whereas with ladder, you've got a very strict set of rules. You've got to follow that or it just isn't going to, com- isn't going to compile. It's not going to work. So anyway, where there is choice, there is a problem. <laughs> Stop giving people choices. Anyway. You heard it from the source here, folks. Hmm. Sorry, I get wound so up about you, that. That's all right. <laughs> Using that as a, a bit of a segue, if anybody would like to hear more about PLCs, um, your Stuxnet episode, episode 16, talks yeah. quite a bit about uh, PLCs and how they're used mm-hmm. and the whole uh, Iranian situation where we sabotaged one of their nuclear plants. Yeah. Um, Funniest part about- probably one of my favorite episodes. Oh, cool. Well, thank you. It was a yeah. uh, one of those ones that I had requests to, to talk about it from other control system engineers uh, that listened to the show. And I thought, oh, yeah, no one's no one's really going to- I mean, how big a, a slice of my audience is actually a control systems engineer or programmer that actually will care? And the funny thing I found is that sometimes it's on those topics that I get the best feedback because people are- Oh wow! I always wondered about the technical details of that, and now I know. Even if they're not control engineers, so I'm I'm doing more of the technical stuff from time to time. But Stuxnet, particularly yeah. for me, was interesting because I've done a lot of work with WinCC and with S7300. So when I was reading through all the antivirus stuff and brushing up on the the, the nitty gritty of how the virus propagated and and what it did. Uh, it was all very familiar to me because I'd done a lot of work with those specific controllers, and I thought to myself, "Oh, okay. Well, that's how they did it. Fair enough." So it was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I was in that second camp of listeners who knew nothing about it just from what I read, uh, you know, on the tech news sites and everything. And actually hearing how it was implemented in PLCs was pretty cool or how you think it was implemented. Yeah, the other interesting thing about Stuxnet is that it's actually still around. It's uh, it's it's spread mm-hmm. like, you know, like certain other viruses in the news. It's sort of spread a little bit out of control and it's sort of a bit, it's kind of a bit scary because... Um, you know, people, it's been so well engineered in terms of um, hiding itself and and um, and cloning and so on. It's, 
yeah, it's still out there uh, in unintentional places. So, yeah, it's interesting. It, it is pretty cool. So uh, now that we're getting into the podcast here, um, how, how would you describe Pragmatic to listeners uh, who maybe haven't heard it and don't listen to it and listen to our show? You know, because you don't really follow the typical interview format, you know, where you have a guest and kind of doing like what we're doing now. And you're, you're not just reading the week's news. Yeah, I I figure that there's enough of that out there. I One of the things that I, I started out, this okay. First of all, Pragmatic was not my first podcast. I did a, a podcast for about twenty episodes called Existential uh, with a friend of mine and uh, from Adelaide, and uh, we sort of followed it up with a um, with another one called Anodize that's uh, that he's sort of taken over and is running with now, and I'm not really um, involved with anymore. But I think I may have heard of that one, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, they weren't. They they were more of a clone of the ones you described. Not so much the interview, but more sort of topics of the week, tech related, and. Yeah, it was it was a I wouldn't say a carbon copy clone, but certainly it was uh it was similar in a lot of aspects. What I wanted to do is I wanted to do something different. There's a show that I was a big fan of called Hypercritical by a guy mm-hmm. uh, called John Syracuse that some of you may have heard of, may not. And um he's known to be quite a nitpicky kind of guy. And Oh, I love his uh his operating system reviews. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very like twenty five pages for Yosemite, which was just, just came out two days ago, I think it that's, was. That's on my bookmark. I gotta I gotta read that one still. Yeah, I'm up to page five. It's well, yeah, it's his slow. level of detail is great. Yeah. It's slow going, but it's worth it. So <laughs> yeah, and he he did uh ninety eight episodes of Hypercritical and I I, I loved it. Uh, but what I wanted to do was I wanted to do something kind of in that style but relating more to engineering topics and relating more to um, and, tr- and to try and have a point at the end of it, to try and have something that people, that listeners could take away and, and, and use and do something with or, you know, it, it's not just meant to be, um, I'm going to teach you about this because I know about this uh, and I think you might f- find interesting. It's more about uh, like the battery problem, for example, where I went over all the different trade-offs regarding uh, solar energy and every th- solar power, wind power, and all that. And you know, if if that gives people ideas and incent- and incentives, a way that they can actually they can take it away from the podcast and say, you know what, I'm going to look at getting a wind generator. I'm going to look at getting solar panels and so on. You know, that, then that's that's awesome. That that's what I'm trying to achieve. And with productivity episodes, if if they can take it away and become, um, you know, think of of strategies to be more productive than then that, that's wonderful and that's what I try and go for. And most of the time, that's what I, I think, I like to think I achieve. I keep telling myself that, but we'll see. Um, but, you know, episodes like Stuxnet are more, you know, and um, uh, RF Bubble, for example, that one, th- those sorts of episodes are more just about the technical, you know, let's just explain this because I find this really interesting and you may as well. But most of the time, I try and have a point that people can then walk away with. And I think that that's different. <laughs> It's unusual, I think, and 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 that's why a lot of people say, "Well, can you describe what you pragmatic is about?" And that's sort of what it's about. Or that's what I try to make it about. And uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of other podcasts out there that do that. And I don't, I don't really understand why. It's just so many podcasts out there just just people talking about. Well, Samsung released a phone this week, and it's thin <laughs> and it's light, and yeah. <laughs> Yep, yeah. yep. I, I kind of slowly started cutting those out of my podcast feed because I, I just listen to so many and, you know, you can only care about the smartphone wars so much. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, okay, the this, the the truth is just on that topic though, you know, smartphones have peaked, right? It's like they're, they're, they're waiting on the next yeah. big um, iteration. The last big iteration was uh, multi-touch and 
you know, since then, nothing earth shattering, you know. So, yeah. we're still waiting on the next- natural progression of specs and- Yeah, exactly. It's leveraging yeah. existing technologies and those le- the, the levers that they're pulling are not taking us into new directions. So, you know, and everyone's now saying, oh, the watch is the next big thing. And I'm not really convinced it's going to be, but anyway. Sorry, I'm just turning <laughs> this podcast into one of those podcasts. I'm going to shut up right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's fine. Go ahead and rant. Right. <laughs> that, was, that was another good one about the uh, the Apple iPhone and, you know, how to interface with the watch and everything, your take on it all. Well, I just the, the thing about that one was that I just heard so many people say, "Oh, why don't we just put a solar panel on it and it can power itself?" And the the kinetic oh, things, yeah, you know, do the power yeah, we're gonna and, well yeah. kinetic, you know, perpetual motion. Oh yeah, and it's like, well, that's not <laughs> gonna work. Here's why, you know. Yeah, yeah, you went through the battery capacity, and you know, it, if you assume perfect solar panels or whatever your assumptions were, and so you could run the screen for three seconds or whatever <laughs> yeah that's right if you want to you can get walking if you want to power it for one second so <laughs> but yeah and this is the this is the problem this is what i wanted to try and help other people to understand is and this is the, the spiel at the beginning of the show is it's about the trade-offs in engineering because engineering is all about trade-offs as you well know and yeah i look at a watch and i look at a smartphone and you know i start thinking about all of the compromises that they made you know every single one of them because that that's that's been our job right to build these mm-hmm. things and to design yeah, these things, balancing the trade-offs. Yeah, and balancing those trade-offs is what makes you and is what engineering is all about, as opposed to you know sitting there thinking, I really don't like this line on the back of this phone, and it's like, well, great, thanks for talking about that. I don't, yeah, great. You know the lines there because <laughs> of the following reasons, yeah. and oh, what you don't know that? Oh, well, let me tell you then. This is why, and and that's why I try try and fill that void mm-hmm. anyway. So, uh, you know, interspersed with your, your very technical episodes, you kind of have the, the fun ones, you know, about <laughs> coffee and, uh, you know, the, uh, the weather prediction. Do you, do you find your users like the oddball topics or are they more technically orientated? Well, the, the thing is that it's hard sometimes to separate because what, what I've done is I, as you, if you've been following the show, you'll know I started out on a, a network called um, Fiat Lux and I'd, sort of a whole bunch of things sort of conspired at, at one point there and I decided it was it was time for me to go out on my own. And since then, I've had guests on the show. And one of the problems with having guests on the show is, well, as you know, is not just organizing a time zone, the time that's going to line up with them, but it's also the fact that uh, Mm. you tend to get part of, if they're popular already, you tend to get a rubbing off of some of their audience as they come and listen to that person on your podcast. And that's okay. That's fine. It's just that sometimes then you can't tell. Who doesn't like a boost in ratings? Well, yeah. Well, sure. But, you know, are they listening for the topic or are they listening for the guest? And- it's hard to separate those. Mm-hmm. So when I get someone like Marco Arment on, who's done, who built Tumblr, who uh, you know from a te- from a code point of view, you know wrote Instapaper and uh, the magazine, and now Overcast, you know, and he's had he's been on built he's had his podcast at Five by Five was built and analyze, and then now he's doing ATP. Um, he did something to do with cars, and there somewhere called Neutral. The point is that this guy is well known. He's got seventy five thousand followers on Twitter. And yeah, he's a fan of pragmatic, and that's 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 awesome. But when he comes on the show and does, talks about coffee, are people interested in learning about coffee, or are they interested in listening to Marco? And you can't separate those two easily. So the most popular episode I've ever had mm-hmm. was coffee. Was that because it was about coffee, or was that because it was about Marco? And I can't tell you. But what I can say is that I've had a far <laughs> more positive reaction to the off tech topic topics than I ever would have thought. I, I mean, I was I expect to cop so much flack for coffee because it was not a technical topic. 
and I got nothing. I got nothing. Mm-hmm. It was all positive, and I'm, I just couldn't believe my eyes. Yeah, even though it was not a traditionally technical topic, you know, you're not talking about the pros and cons of RF tracking in three space. Uh, sure. <laughs> you still went into pretty technical detail for coffee, you know, the effect roasting has on the beans and, mm. you know, why you'd want an AeroPress over just a standard drip machine. And Sure. It is pretty technical, despite being about coffee. Um, yeah, I suppose that's... Which I'm, I'm also a bit of a coffee snob, too, as we alluded to. <laughs> it's also a so, unifying topic. I mean, <laughs> even if you're... It unifies people. I mean, everyone drinks coffee. Mm-hmm. and Well, a lot of people well, do, yeah. Well, for the most part. And it's it's especially, yeah. uh, it drives the engineering and the technical crowd probably more so than many other groups. Mm-hmm. That's true, actually. It probably is a high proportion. Yeah, even if all you know about coffee is complaining about the uh, the free stuff work gives out if you're so lucky. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is a, a common theme. Mm. That's true, and the the funny thing about specifically count the spe- what was that? Go ahead. I was going to say as I as I uh, specifically about the coffee episode, it was um it, we we actually I was getting into coffee uh, because I recently had to give up soft drinks. That's a long story, but the point uh, sorry soda pop, and uh, when I started getting into coffee, <laughs> and I started tweeting about it. Then someone said, "Hey, you should do an episode of Pragmatic about coffee," and I sort of laughed. I'm like, "Yeah, okay, sure, right, whatever," and then then Marco sort of just randomly. Um, sort of chimed in and said, hey, that'd be an episode I actually feel qualified to talk about. And then I had a few people on Twitter start so, sort of like elbowing me in the ribs virtually and saying, hey, you should really do this. And I went to Marco jokingly and said, hey, you know, what? that'd be funny, wouldn't it? And he's like, yo, I'm up for it. Let's do it. And I'm like, holy, all right, <laughs> sure. And it, it, it sort of came up very randomly. And uh, the weather topic, for example, I've been sort of Twitter friends with um, Joel Hausman for uh, about a year or so. And and uh, he's always tweeting about the weather and so on. And I knew that he was a, sort of a, into the weather. And, and I said, hey, would you like to come on and talk about weather? And you know, he was like, oh, can't wait. Let's do this. So, his enthusiasm uh, comes across in the episode. And I think that was another good one. So, anyway. So I don't mind doing the off the off tech topics um, from time to time because, yeah, it, it keeps it interesting. Mm-hmm. I think. So uh, how do you come up with the other topics? I mean, I know uh, we said Stuxnet was PLCs, which you know. The RF bubble episode about the P cell technology obviously is in your wheelhouse. But how about some of the other ones, like the the batteries or you know whiteboarding? Nah. Well, I guess the thing is I. <sighs> The way I come across the topics is they're topics that I'm interested in or that I care about or that I'm affected by. And I love whiteboards, I'll be honest. Um, they're an extension of my brain. I, I love using whiteboards and I don't... Uh, who doesn't? Yeah, I guess... Yeah, there, there's something about filling it up with equations and yeah. you know, sketches and totally. whatever and seeing. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it's it, like I say, it's an extension of my brain. I, mean, I use it for you know everything from, from, from equations to project planning to just to-do lists. You know, I still find a whiteboard to-do list more useful to me than an electronic to-do list for whatever reason. Maybe I'm just old and I'm used yeah. to that. I don't know, whatever. But I still think that whiteboards are, you know, a simple tool and they're underutilized by a lot of people. I think they can be very, very helpful. So, doing an episode on that, uh, when I was talking to Seth Clifford and he said, hey, we should do that because he uses whiteboards a lot as well. You know, why not? So, I try and pick topics that I'm, I'm interested in or passionate about or that affect me, you know, every day. And and that's how I come up with the, the topics. I've had a few people have asked me, well, some of these are really a bit strange. 
but um, yeah, I don't know what else to say, really. That, that's 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 how I pick. I seem to remember one episode about uh, you know how you should label your variables in various programming languages, whether you start with <laughs> upper or lowercase, if the underscore is acceptable. And yeah, it, that was a pretty interesting discussion. Yeah, the thing about programming is, like I said, where there's choice, you've got a problem, and you know, having some kind mm-hmm. of structure and following some kind of rules, you have to. And I've just seen so much butchered code in my life. I'm, if I can just avoid, so help some engineer somewhere avoid one line of butchered code, then that's a good thing. Anyway, <laughs> your podcast did its job. I have, I have succeeded. Yes. <laughs> One of the things, you know, that, that comes across in your podcast is it, it's clear you put a lot of uh, detail into every episode. You know, you've, you've done your homework quite quite in depth, too. Um, how much time do you spend researching and preparing for your average episode? Well, it depends on the topic. I, if it's something that I can talk to off the bat, then I'll simply, you know, maybe four to six hours sort of. Uh, and when mm-hmm. I say four to six hours, what I mean is that that's just making sure that I've got all of my facts correct, ga- gathering in a bunch of links. Uh, so, I like to have show notes that have links to uh, more detail on the topics that I'm covering so that if people are interested. Yeah, it's one of the most frustrating things about podcasts is when you check the show notes out and yeah. they don't have a link to whatever you inter- or you were interested in. Yeah, or, or they say during so the, during the show. Yeah, it's like, oh, you're welcome. I mean, it annoys me as well, which is why I do it. So, you know, you'll have people say uh, some long-winded thing and you're like, you're driving at the time. And or you're walking and you just or you can't you can't make a note down at the time and they'll say have a look at this site it's got this and it's like okay and at the end of the podcast half an hour later you can't remember so if it's in the yeah, show notes you go to the show notes and it's there so yeah odds are you're not going to go back and re-listen to find that one three minute segment where they were talking about everything you wanted to know if it was really 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 important I probably would but generally it's too much hassle and most people I think are in the same boat it's too hassle too much of a hassle so. Uh, a lot of the time is doing that, but on topics where I'm going really, really in depth, like the watch episode, you know, that's 15, 20 hours worth of, of research because I'm not an expert on making watches. I mean, I understand how the kinetics works, but I want to provide more information about the evolution of the watches, some of which I need to learn a little bit about myself. So, some of it, some of what I cover is is myself uh, learning other parts of it. And usually most of it is me just refreshing my own memory because memory is a fuzzy thing. So it's better to pay in to check the facts and make sure that the facts are correct. If, most of the time my memory's right, but sometimes, you know, I'll be reading up on Wikipedia and find a few cross-referencing articles and it'll be, oh, I always thought it was, I thought it was, oh, okay, I'm glad I checked that because mm-hmm. memory is a fuzzy thing. <laughs> but I think despite all your prep work do you still have people coming and nitpicking details yes oh yes absolutely and honestly I, I don't mind that I've, I've had a huge volume of, of uh, follow up that's been building up for a while that I'm going to start trying to clear out I, I started last week and I just did a coffee follow up I just recorded coffee follow up uh, with Marco actually mm-hmm. a few days ago so uh, you know, when you've got you know 50 to 100 f- feedback emails you know either telling you, oh, you are so right, or, oh, you're so wrong, or have you checked this out, or have you checked that out, or did you consider this? And it's like, wow, okay, uh, hmm. So- <laughs> Opened up a whole can of worms here. Yeah, that's it. And other topics, I'll get two or three items, and then other times I'll get, you know, 50s and 60s, and it's there's no rhyme or reason or logic to it. It just depends on if you strike a nerve or not, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. 
other than you know prepping for the show and getting your facts straight, is the rest of it all just off the cuff, or do you do you operate from a script? I I half write a script, um, and this is a habit I got to got into in the early days. Is I used to start it just with bullet points, but I found that there were so many bullet points. I'd have five pages of bullet points, and I would miss I would miss some of the details. So what I do is I tend to write out fragments like clauses or part segment sentences that encapsulate the ideas, the key ideas. So, it's sort of, I guess you'd say maybe a quarter to a third scripted uh, and the rest I'll just fill in based on, you know, bullet points and experience. So, it's sort of a blend. It's not a script like the ad reads that I read during the show for the um, sponsors, those are scripted but mm-hmm. i script them i write the entire script i go back to the advertiser and i say a sponsor and i say look do you want um do you like this wording you know or do you not like the wording or how would you like it and then i will read it almost word for word uh because i think that's important to get you know the, the sponsors will come back and say well you know we, we want you to cover this and you said you would and you didn't or we gave you some bullet points and you skipped a bullet point it's okay for me to skip bullet points during the show even though it irritates my i, I irritate myself when i do that and then i have to go back and follow up about it but anyway mm-hmm. uh, when i'm doing a sponsor read it's different so there's a clear difference between the sponsors and the actual flow of the episode but if i were to write it out word for word and fully script mm-hmm. it it would equally be five to ten pages of, of stuff and i don't have I already, I already spent enough time gathering links and doing as much as I do, let alone writing an entire article or essay about it. Sometimes I do, though. Some episodes, I'm like, yeah, this would make a really good article and post cross-post it on Tech Distortion. So, I'll have... Uh, so, uh, I'm trying to think. The, the iPhone article, for example, the very first one, episode one, I actually did about three weeks worth. Well, not in real, not in real time. as actual time. Mm-hmm. It's probably more about 30, 40 hours worth because... I spent time on prep for the episode, but then I took all my prep and polished it and turned it into an article that I then posted on the site. So, I, sometimes I have done that, but it is a fair bit of extra work and usually I don't have the time. It's sort of one or the other. Gotcha. Very cool. And John, do you find it difficult when you're, you know, you start getting into a technical issue and uh, engineers use a lot of, you know, shortcuts, diagrams, mathematical equations to express an idea, to to get across a concept. And in this world of audio podcasting, you don't have those tools. Uh, how do you work around that limitation? Uh, I've been told that I, by a lot of people, that for whatever reason, and I don't understand this exactly, but I have this knack for being able to describe things with words. And okay. honestly, I, I, I think I do okay. But I would be lying if I said that I didn't wish I had a whiteboard to show people <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> I refer you to my previous comments about how much I love whiteboards. But, you know, the, the problem I've got is that you're right. It's an audio medium. And honestly, sometimes only a diagram will do. And you'll hear me on the show from time to time. Not regularly, I hope. But from time to time, you'll hear me saying, geez, I wish I could draw this. How do you describe this with words? And I, and I am stumped sometimes because it is hard. And so many of the, so many times I wish it was a, a screencast or a video cast where I could, where I could cross over to a, to a sketching app or something where I could illustrate <laughs> what I was talking about. And I've sort of kicked around ideas, but the problem with that is that the whole attraction of audio is it's, well, I'm not trying to create theatre for the mind exactly, but I'm certainly trying to describe things such that people don't have to stop whatever they're doing, and to uh, look at something that I'm showing them. 
You know, it's it, right. if if I if I have if I force people to do that to some extent, I guess I figure that's what the show notes are for. If you want to go and set, look at some of the visuals, and you got to look in the show notes sometimes. But I try very hard to keep to words because I am restricted by the medium. And, and, if, yes. and if, yeah, so not sure if that answers the question, but yeah. Well, and so like in the, in the last episode we did, we were talking about uh, various nuts and bolts, and I was trying to describe oh, yeah. the differences between a flathead screw and a panhead screw. Yeah. And there becomes a limitation to, you know, what's the difference between a pan, panhead screw that's slightly rounded and a round head, you know, a rounded screw that has the full radius. Mm-hmm. And at some point, uh, <laughs> you go, well, <laughs> go look at the chart. It would be so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. Same problem with crinkle washes, star washes, flat washes. Um, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a problem. It's like crinkle wash. It's kind of wavy. Uh, yeah. And uh, star wash, it kind of looks like a star. Yeah. But of course, <laughs> stars have all sorts of different ways they're drawn. So, which one is it? Well, yeah. Right. Star-like. Yeah. Yeah. It's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem. Big problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you decide uh, how how deep to go technically? You know, obviously you don't want to just scratch the surface. You want to give them your listeners a little bit more, but you also don't want them to glaze over as they drive and kind of just tune it out because it's too in depth for them. Well, that's actually that's a really good question, and it's hard to. If let me just start by saying that I try not to think about how deep I should go for the audience because. I get so much varying feedback about how far, at what point people glaze over. Because honestly, mm-hmm. different listeners, I've I've come to learn, which to me is crazy, but you know, some listeners just tune in and listen. They say, they, they say I really love the show. Didn't understand half of it, but really loved it. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, cool. I guess that's great. I'm glad you're getting something out of it, but- um, obviously, they glazed over about, you know, however far into the show because I was getting too technical. And, you know, I get other feedback from people saying, really love the detail, got into the whole thing. And this that they'll, they'll pick a specific point that was very, very detailed, let's say, about the uh, the leakage current on a gate of a, of a transistor or so on on the SSD episode. I got some feedback about that. And it was, you know, so obviously, I can't gauge at what point listeners may or may not gloss over. So... I can't, I can't make a topic that is. I can't choose a level that way. The best thing I can do is go as deep as I think is relevant, uh, and to sort of, I suppose, either make the point I'm trying to make, or that would be beneficial. You know, again, sort of for for the majority of people, and 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 I realise that that in and of itself is impossible to gauge. It's hard. It's hard. I, I yeah. just. Yeah, I, I try very hard to explain things at a level that most people that have not got an engineering background can understand. So, one of the, things, one of the great things I love about, about your show is that it's a chance to listen to other engineers uh, go into a lot of technical depth sometimes about different aspects of engineering, which otherwise I don't hear anywhere else. And I think that's awesome. That's wonderful. And I'm trying to sort of strike a balance between that and non-engineer listeners and and it's very hard. It, it's hard to know when you're doing well and it's hard to know how far to go and I wish I had a better answer than that, but I'm not sure I do. Yeah, I think that people enjoy um people enjoy hearing stories and so if if you're telling stories and you're giving, you know, it, there's sort of a a flow to the conversation that people enjoy that. But I think also that I mean, to me, I sort of rate 
podcasts and and other things I listen to, like books and movies. I've, I mean, I've got stacks of books around my office here. And if, if I pick up any one of those books, I have a, you know, an emotional reaction to that book. Did I like it or didn't I like it? And often it boils down to a passage or a couple of paragraphs or, or maybe a, a chapter at best. And the rest of the book, I don't remember anything about the book, but I remember that chapter because that that particular chapter influenced me. And I think it's a lot with you – know, same thing with podcasts. I, you you listen to people and, and uh, you, you listen to a couple of episodes and is this person speaking to me? Are they explaining things in a new way that I wouldn't have thought of otherwise? And so I think that, that probably your ability to be enthusiastic about a subject and to explain things from the engineering point of view, if somebody's interested in that engineering point of view, they're going to be interested in, in listening to you describe it. And uh, uh, so I, I think that explains why some people may not understand the entire technical explanation, but they enjoy the episode. Not that they're going to, I don't think anybody's going to understand every detail uh, unless they're already an expert in that area, but but the fact you're describing it and giving them new insights into into the way an engineer views the world. That's awesome. Actually, I, I thank you for that. That that's I'd never thought of it quite like that before, but I think that's nailed it. Terrific. <laughs> I think we got a new segment to our show. What do we like <laughs> about the other other person's podcast? <laughs> All right, we need we need a little bit of theme music, and uh, yeah, we're good to go for the next episode. <laughs> Uh, so recently, you just added uh, a live chat feature to um, the recording, yeah. and that, that's something we obviously haven't done here, but are, what are the pros and cons of that, and do you find the listener feedback in real time uh, to be beneficial? Um, it's one of those things that I first came across this. I know that uh, Twitter has been doing this for a while, but 5x5 have been doing it also, and I first came across mm-hmm. it with 5x5, and most- most of the larger networks or most of the podcast networks um, now do do it as something they say that they do it because it needs to be there um, as a feature not and I've spoken to different people different podcasters about this and it's interesting a lot of people do it because they feel they need to do it and other people do it because they actually genuinely think it adds value from my point of view I'm doing it to provide uh, another dimension to the podcast. Oh, geez, I don't want this to sound ridiculous, but the experience, I guess. If you want to participate, it's a different experience than just passively listening because you have the opportunity to interact with the host, which is something that you can't do when you're driving in the car. I mean, you can yell at them, sure, but they're not going to hear you. <laughs> so right. you got to yell really loud. Yeah, exactly. So, the, the live aspect has downsides, and the downsides are that- it can interrupt the flow of the show, especially a, stru- a very highly structured show like mine. And so, what I've done is I've sort of taken a bit of a compromise position and I, it took me a little while to reach this conclusion. I didn't, I didn't realize it coming it straight out of the blocks, but now I've done this for a few, a few, well, a couple of months now nearly. Uh, I decided to introduce Q&A and the idea of the Q&A segment is that people can ask questions in the chat room or make comments or do whatever they like in the chat room during the course of the show. But I generally will not will not acknowledge that during the actual episode where I'm covering the stuff I want to cover, because that would interfere with me trying to get to get through the topic. So the Q and A gives them a, ch- a question, just like you would be in a lecture. You know, hold questions till the end, right? Same kind of mm-hmm. idea, not a new idea. You focus on the content. Once the episode is over, then I then will address the Q and A at the end, so that 
you get the best of both worlds. And people within the chat room, sometimes I'll, I'll make an exception to that rule if there's a really good point that I've missed. But, but generally, uh, I'll hold off until the end. So, that gives people the opportunity to still interact with me like before the show and after the show, but I still maintain that core um, of the episodes that is, you know, as as I had originally planned. And I've had so much good feedback about people that say, yeah, you know, John, we really like the fact that it's it's focused, that, you know, you stay on topic, you don't ramble, you don't, you know, it's like if you say a show is, episode is about this, you actually start talking about this a few, like two or three minutes in after the introduction, uh, you don't waffle on for half an hour with follow-up you don't waffle on about what you had for breakfast you know you know what i mean it's like you get straight yeah. to it and um, yeah I, I listen to a few interview podcasts and it you know before they get to the actual interview there's like a half an hour or 20 minutes of what the host has done since the last episode and it's like i don't care i want to hear yeah exactly about the interview yeah and exactly and that irritates me a lot about listening to other other podcasts is that there's so much of that and yeah, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes I just get so impatient. I just keep hitting the fast forward button and I keep skipping. And of course, you don't know how far to skip. You know, it's yeah. like, at what point are they talking about, you know, eggs on toast uh, that they had this morning? And which point are they actually talking about what you want to listen to? So, that's the other reason is that follow up has become a thing, you know, in pod- in, in, mm-hmm. a, in a lot of tech podcasts where you'll start talking about follow up uh, at the beginning of the episode about the previous episode. But here's the thing. What if I don't care? What if I'm not interested in follow-up about that topic? I just want to get to what you want to talk about this week. So, I just I made a conscious decision after about the third episode that I, I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't want to just copy what other people did. So, I split the follow-up out as a separate thing. So, now follow-up is no longer part of the individual episodes. So, if you want to listen yeah, to the follow-up- Yeah, that's really nice too because especially, you know, I'm trying to listen to your back catalog. So, if I listen to your batteries episode and then I see, oh, there's battery follow-up, you know, Two months later, real time, I can just go download that right now and not wait till, not wait till I get there. Yeah, a- absolutely. And and I've had a lot of feedback along those lines. Is that a lot of people really like it? And the thing, the interesting, the flip side of that is that people then say, and you know, getting back to the whole trade offs thing, uh, is that uh, I have a main feed now that consists of two kinds of episodes. It's essentially a blended feed. So you'll have main episodes that cover a main topic, and then you'll have follow up episodes which relate to a, a previous episode. And I've had people say, well, you know, I don't want this follow-up showing up in my feed. And for the first 35 or so episodes, I said, well, tough. They're going to be in the same feed. <laughs> and then I got enough negative feedback about it. I'm like, you know what? Okay, if it's going to keep you guys happy, you can have it in a separate feed. So, now you can listen to the main shows if you want and you can listen to them uh, without follow-up ever. And, and this is where the counter-argument goes, yeah, but follow-up's an integral part of the show. You know, it has to be, you have to listen to it. And I sort of thought yeah. to myself, yeah, because this is this is what everyone else, the, the general per- pervasive podcasting wisdom is that that's what you should do. And I think to myself, well, you know what? No, 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 you don't. I don't want to make someone listen follow up that they aren't interested in. If I'm going to have coffee follow up at the beginning of an episode about transistors, well, what if that person doesn't drink coffee? They don't care about coffee. They want to hear about transistors, you know, bring on the gates. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Teacher size. Yeah. So, anyway. I, I try to do those things differently and it's funny because people that have been podcasting for years follow the podcast conventions and that, that have been established, like having the live chat room and interacting during the show and they don't do the Q&A thing afterwards and they have these, these after episode bonuses and they, you know, they have all these different you know, conventions that they follow and I'm not really interested in any of that. I, I want to make this more efficient and more effective and do this, that's something a better experience for, for the listeners and maybe someday- 
um, someone will will notice and or care more than I do. At the moment, it's just mainly me caring, it seems, but that's okay. <laughs> so, you know, I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to improve the show. And that's the other thing I just added is, is topic suggestions now. is That's the other thing that bugs me is that, you know, you don't know what people are going to talk about this week. You don't know what they're going to talk about next week or the week after. Well, if I've got a TV guide, it shows me. And I'll get a little synopsis mm. that says, you know, this week, you know, oh, Jack and Jill went up the hill. Okay, great. Fantastic. I, I, I want to, I've been looking forward to listening to them going up the hill. So, I'm going to listen to that episode. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you get the idea, yeah, right? Yeah. So, the whole point is that now people will be able to look and li- we'll be able to look at the at tech distortion, go to the topic, go to topics and, and they can see, oh, here's what John has planned for the next, you know, X number of episodes. Oh, and I can vote on the, mm-hmm. the topics that I want him to talk about. Here, we'll vote on this one, vote on this one. Fantastic. So now I'm getting some more feedback, and that's something that other shoes, other shows don't do. Well, why mm. not? Yeah, you know, why not? If I can get it's feedback, something we may steal. <laughs> well, feel free to do so. I mean, the 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 point is that I'm trying to make it better. I'm trying to to move this forward. And and the funny thing is, people that have been in the podcasting game for ages see this and they shake their head and they're like, "No, oh, yeah. that oh, I'm just going to keep mm. doing what I'm doing." But yeah, because I, they they have all the answers and they know what their listeners want. Well, I think it's a I think it's one of those self perpetuating things is that you get into a you get into a habit of doing things and then after a while you forget why you got into the habit of doing those things and it's just oh we've just always done it that way rather than someone like me who's coming at this from a different angle which is well I've listened to podcasts for years and here's what I can't stand I'm going to do this differently. I have. I'm not reliant on mm-hmm. income from the show. I'm. I have no angst, axe to grind politically, and as an indie, I can do whatever I want. So I'm going to. And you know what? Sometimes it's not going to work, but other times, you know, maybe I'll hit on something. I don't know. Maybe hasn't happened yet, but I remain hopeful. <laughs> I guess. Anyway, yeah. a podcast about podcasting. <laughs> there we go. How meta. <laughs> and and John, I, I'm just kind of curious with this with this Q and A and interface going on in real time how do you handle the cognitive what for me would be overload i mean i struggle enough just trying to you know when we we interview guests like yourself trying to listen to the conversation think of what i want to talk about next what the next question might be uh where we are in regards to time i'm i often struggle to keep up with all of that and we have no no interface with the listening audience how, how do you handle that I think the part that I struggle with the most is the the Q and A after the show. If you listen live, uh, you'll if you're not listening live, then you'll miss out on the fact that sometimes I'll take a good thirty seconds to a minute thinking about the question before I actually respond. And uh-huh. I realise that if I was up on stage, if that was like a, if I was in a lecture theatre and giving a presentation on a topic, and I had the same thing, that would be unacceptable. You know, standing there having the whole audience stare at you for 30 seconds while you think about how to answer, mm-hmm. you know, but this is, this is, this is showbiz, right? You can, <laughs> you can, you can, you can mess with it after, fa- after the fact. And that's what I do is that I'll say, well, it's not interesting for people driving in their car to listen to me go, yeah, I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, for 30 <laughs> seconds. I mean, that's not entertaining. Right. That's not interesting. No one wants to hear that. It's not. Yeah. It's not, I'm not trying to make myself sound any different. It's just the fact that I'm trying to do what's best for people listening is they don't want to listen to me, listen to me cogitate for 30 seconds, 60 seconds about a topic, about a question. But, uh, you know, honestly, I don't know what else to say. It's just I, I try not to look at the chat room too much during the show, uh, during the live show, because it can be distracting and I want to stay on topic and focused. But during the Q&A, sometimes that's where I do stumble a bit. And, and that's okay 
because that's the price of interacting with with the audience is that they will ask questions that you did not consider. And that's the whole point. And that's why I think it's great is that, you know, it's a perspective that I, I don't ordinarily get until after the fact. And someone once joked about uh, uh, about hypercritical, a very sim- similar sort of, you know, structure. Well, in some respects anyway, um, that the host was having a slow motion argument with the internet. <laughs> which I think is a very good way of describing it. Whereas with a live show, you know, you have the genuine interaction, just like if you're standing up on a stage with an audience. And I think that that's, I think it's a different and more interesting dimension to add to the show. So that's why I've been, that's why I did it anyway. Neat. And, and, and do you have a sense at this point, what the makeup is of your audience engineers versus non-engineers? Um, I get, I get feedback from time to time from people that I would never expect. Like, I've had feedback from nuclear physicists, mathematicians. Jeez, uh, I, I had uh, feedback from a, jeez, um, oh, something-something biologist. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I have to follow up. It was like six months ago. But, you know, the, the point is that it was, it's blown my mind, actually, uh, the, the, the variety of people. There's a lot of programmers, I think. So, I think probably half of the demographic. And I guess given that someone like Marco Armand appeared on the show and, and, you know, because he really enjoyed the show, sort of advertised it in a sense. I mean, he, he blogged about it and that, that really, you know, had, did wonders for the show's downloads, that's for sure. But a massive sure. spike, mm-hmm. you know, as you, you know, I guess um, his audience is predominantly programmers. So, it would make sense then that a lot of the people that came across after that incident um, like uh, sometimes referred to as the Marco incident, it sort of, you know, <laughs> they would therefore be programmers. So, you know, it makes sense to me. However, I do have a lot of engineers that listen and I suspect that it's probably somewhere between 20%, 25%. But I don't ha- I-, I have no figures. And even if I did a survey, even if I asked people to do a survey and say, hey, what do you do for a living? Which I would never do because that to me is just the most, that's the wrongest thing I could ever ask. And wrongest is not a word. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's a, it, I would never do that to my listeners and say, hey, can you fill out this demographic so I know how to target my demographic? I mean, oh, God, really? No, 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 never. I'm not a marketing person. Um, right. So, but yeah, if I had to have a stab in the dark, I'd say maybe a quarter of the listeners are probably engineers. And, um, yeah, but like I said, nuclear physicists, wow, that's cool. That's impressive. I mean, I'd love to have done that. It just, I, yeah, but anyway, that's okay. I guess can't do everything. Maybe the next chapter in your career. Yeah, next lifetime or something. I don't know. So, I have a lot to learn to become a <laughs> nuclear physicist. That's, that's, that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It- and do you get it? I, I, so I was listening uh, recently to your to, to the uh, podcast you'd done on productivity. I can't remember if that was the title of the episode or not, but uh, it was just one or two back that you were talking about various yeah. ways that you tried to enhance you know your ability to get things done. Mm. And I'm wondering, so when because we focus on engineers here on this podcast, whether the engineers that write to you they tend to write just technical details, uh, correcting your mistakes, technical mistakes, or they're, they're looking for advice, technical advice, or they're looking for like career advice. Uh, I actually, it, that's an interesting question. I, uh, I've actually had some people ask for some career advice and I sort of found that to be rather interesting. I'm more than happy to give out, you know, free advice. Sure. But, um, sure. you know, honestly, um, from a technical point of view, I do get 
I do get a handful of people that come back uh, with highly technical responses, which are fantastic. I love them. Mm-hmm. But the majority of people will respond with either, I really liked it, I really did, or I really disagreed with this. Um, and some people have even, even email in their life story, which, you know, is... is Still cool because I mean it's it's great hearing about how other people got into engineering and and programming and and why they find this stuff as as cool as I do and are into it as much as I am. Right, uh, it's great because yeah, it's kind of like it's an opportunity to interact with people that you otherwise wouldn't, and yeah, because I I don't know about I don't know about you guys, but certainly when I was growing up and going through. Uh, you know, getting into engineering and everything, I was very much alone. Most of the other people that I went to school with, you know, weren't engineers, didn't become engineers, weren't interested in science. They, you know, it was a niche thing, you know, call it geek culture if you want to. I hate calling it that, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's a niche. And this, and one of the things about the show has been, and Twitter also, is that it's an opportunity to interact with other people that find this stuff cool. And- Mm -hmm. And that's an opportunity that I don't get in the real world very often at all. And because in the real world, like your people will be talking about football or or cricket or whatever they're talking about, baseball or depending upon what season it is and what country you're in. But yeah, you know, they'll be talking about sports or whatever else or the weather. And then suddenly right. someone pulls out their phone and they start talking about the pros and cons of iOS and Android. And then and that's become more mainstream, which is great. But then, even rarer than that, someone will pull out, you know, pull something out of their pocket and say, um, "Oh, yeah, I was working about this, working on this uh, low noise amplifier on the weekend." Okay, so that's maybe happened once, but you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you see, you know, and that, and that interaction with those people that otherwise you'd never meet is is absolutely magic, uh, and I and I like that the most, to be honest, uh, is the feedback from people like that. So the technical responses are great, and I love them too. But yeah, being able to connect with these other with other people that are that see the world the way I do is, is, is priceless. So that alone makes the show worth doing, to be honest. Yeah. And that's a neat thing about the internet that you can make those connections, you know, even working, if you're two engineers working in the same company, uh, the company may be putting out the same product, but you may be working on the manufacturing equipment and the other person is working on the quality assurance end of things. And you don't have a whole lot to talk about because they don't care about what, you know, if you're on the, on the machine end of it, they don't care about what PLC you're using. And if mm. they're on the quality end, you don't really care about which statistical package they're using. Yeah, that's very true. And uh, work forces us to sort of people of very different walks of life working together to deliver a product of some kind, usually, or a service. And uh, very different backgrounds, very different interests. And just because you're working on the same product doesn't mean that you've got the same interests as, the, that, as that person. So, it's yeah, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity, the internet, to to meet people of a like mind. And, um, and I think that's wonderful. It's, it's very nice. It's very neat. It's very neat. So what, so what are your future uh, hopes for the podcast or, or maybe, you know, maybe uh, tech distortion is a bigger, you know, overarching uh, enterprise. So, so what, what are your hopes? What do you want this to become in future years? Well, I want to, they say that, yeah, if you're doing something that's successful, the first step, thing you should do is to keep doing it so first things first i'm going to keep making pragmatic i guess maybe that's obvious but uh i get feedback sometimes uh saying don't burn out and i kind of spend all of my spare time that i have working on the show or on aspects of the show that relate to the show like the enhancements with the topic voting and suggestions and all that 
I thought I had to learn a lot of PHP and a lot of JavaScript, and and that's and that's good because you know for years I've meant to do it, and now I had a reason to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a reason of sorts, I say a reason, but you know I wanted to do it, so you know I had a had a motivation to do it, and uh, you know that's that takes a lot of my spare time. I mean, when I say spare time, I, I still spend time with my kids and you know my wife, and we we still do stuff and you know, family things and all that. It's just that any other spare time that I could be curling up with a book or just, you know, surfing the web, I don't do that. And I, I spend my time, pull my time into the into the site and into the show. And that corner, you know, eventually I can understand why people would say, well, look, you're going to burn out doing that for too much longer. So, right. I don't know if I am going to, I suppose maybe, you know, I'm going to take the position that it's inevitable at some point that I will get sick of it. And that's the reality. Uh, hasn't happened yet, and I I can't see that happening yet. But of course, I would say that because you wouldn't realize it until you were burned out that you were burned out. I guess anyway. Right. <laughs> so um okay so future okay I'm rambling. The future for the site. Um, I want to continue <laughs> to integrate tech distortion with pragmatic insofar as uh, I mean tech distortion came first. It's been I've been blogging on tech, TD now for th- four years and. It really is not a very popular site, and that's fine because for what for whatever reason I do not understand is that people are far more interested to hear, hear me talking than to him than to read my writing, yeah. and that's okay. Maybe it's a I, I I don't understand why that is, but okay. So I'm going to focus more on the podcasting side, and Tech Distortion will continue to support that um, as a as a oh god as a platform. <laughs> I, I hate describing it that way, but I mean, you know what I mean. It's like it's a place yeah. where I can plug in pragmatic and say, right, this is an uh, this is part of the site. It needs a home to mm-hmm. live in, um, you know. But yeah. I've also toyed with another podcast called uh, that I called Tangential, and I did. I've done a few episodes of that. And there's another one that I'm planning for a few weeks' time, and it's and it's a completely opposite of pragmatic kind of podcast where there is no plan, there is no topic, and I just get two other people that otherwise have never talked before. And we all get together on Skype and just shoot the breeze for however long and just talk about whatever. And and that's been an experiment that's, yeah, sort of been okay. But honestly, it's just a side project of a side project. Um, longer term than that, I have other ideas for other podcasts that are more specifically about engineering. But honestly, at this point, they're just early stages and... I think that it would be a far more restrictive audience and this sort of thing that I just don't have time to do more than one podcast at the moment, really. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and that is a limitation. I mean, we've, we've uh, talked amongst ourselves before about, you know, we're, we're doing a podcast about the philosophy of engineering mm. and there's, there's a limited audience for that. First of all, you've got, you're limited to engineers pretty much and then you're limited to engineers who care about the philosophy of engineering and then you're limited to engineers who care about the philosophy of engineering who know how to download a podcast and have the time to listen to it. Yeah. Um, so you, rest- you restrict yourself uh, pretty much in that regard. But again, uh, we kind of consider it a labor of love. Uh, there just was nobody else doing this, and, and we were hoping that uh, uh, other people would find benefit in it. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, when when the show started out and it was, you know, the first few episodes, we had five, 600 downloads and an episode and that was it. You know, I was still making the show and I was going to keep making the show because I, I enjoy doing it. And, you know, now that the numbers are, you know, a lot higher than that, it's, I'm still doing it for all the same reasons. And I, I, right. I will never cover a topic because I or get a guest on just because I think that they're going to give me more more downloads, you know, because that's not what it's about. Because this is not a sort of primary 
source of income. It's not even much of a source of income, to be honest. I mean, the show, <laughs> the sponsors, it, I don't mind having sponsors. There's a philosophical debate about people that with some podcasters say, oh, oh, you shouldn't have sponsors because sponsors, you know, change the show and people don't like listening to advertising and, and so on and so forth. Since I've had advertisers on the show, sponsors on the show, it really, I've had no negative feedback at all. And, you know, because people understand that, you know, it's a way of monetizing the show up to a point. I don't make huge money from it. Um, It's not the reason that I'm doing it, but it's the reason that I'm talking to you now through a Heil PR40, which is a very nice dynamic microphone and a Machionics Blackjack. So, the money that I'm making from the sponsorship rolls back into the show to give me better quality equipment so that- you know, my voice sounds better. It funds the, the the website so that I'm not funding that out of my own pocket anymore. It's become right. a self-sustaining hobby in that right. respect. But that's still not the reason I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I want to do it because, as you say, it, it's a labor of love. I, I, I enjoy doing it. Right. But, you know, in, inevitably, though, uh, yes, you're right about the, the audience. And um, I, I think that it's the sort of thing that if you focus too much on that, you stop you stop doing it for yourself and then the show falls apart at least that's what i think so yeah. it's best to focus on the love the love of it and to do it for that and, and on that note here we're we're closing in on an hour and a half um i think we we've hit a natural wrap up point here so sure um any any final questions for john so uh, i i guess i'll ask you know any any advice for you know the typical working engineer who uh uh, sitting there at their desk, you know, listening to the podcast and thinking, I want to make the world a better place. Any advice on on how the uh, the engineering profession can help them do that? Well, I think that the the best piece of advice would be to follow your dreams up to a point. Be realistic, <laughs> but follow. <laughs> I think doing doing something because you enjoy doing it is very very important. Setting out to change the world or make the world a better place. Some people picture that as being something that it, that it isn't. Uh, they, they think that I need to, I don't know, invent something amazing that everyone uses. I need to um, start a company like Apple or, or, um, or Tesla or something you know, and, and put a dent in the world or something. I guess maybe some people think about world domination, but whatever. You know, <laughs> that, is, that is not changing the world for the vast majority of us. And in engineering, you don't get that opportunity all the time. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to do it, but what I am saying is that it's perfectly okay to be involved on a project where you're building a massive dam and that dam is providing water to a million people, you know, or water pipelines or water treatment or wastewater treatment plants or oil and gas or power stations. I mean, all of these things, these things that people rely on, that people don't, like the average person, non-engineers, they, they don't see... They don't see what we see. They don't. They don't understand it, and they're, they're happy not to. They don't care. They're just happy that when they turn the water on, they get water that they can drink, and they don't get sick. You know that, right. that that's all they care about. Changing the world and making an impact to me as an engineer is about delivering on services and infrastructure that people use every day, and and that is enough. Making their lives better, making their lives easier. You know that is what engineering is about. And if I had to pitch it to anybody, that's the way I'd pitch it. Well, and I think that's beautifully stated. Yeah, yeah, very well said. And have fun. Engineering's fun. Oh yeah, you set can't the pa- take yourself set the- too seriously. Yeah, set the paperwork. That's not so much fun. But, you know. 
<laughs> That's when you just try to sneak in dirty sentences and hope they don't get caught in it. <laughs> oh, the, the smart-ass uh, code comments, they're my favorite. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's like, I have to call this function call now because uh, this thing is stupid. And you're reading that comment like five years later and someone wrote that and you're like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they understood there was no logic to this. That's it. That's it. I'm the only one that yeah. finds it funny, but it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, John, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Um, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way? Is it Twitter or through Tech Distortion? Um, uh, best way is uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's uh, John Chigi, uh, J-O-H-N-C-H-I-D-G-E-Y. Um, probably be a link maybe in the show notes. I don't know. Um, yes. Oh, definitely. <laughs> for that one, it's a weird name. That's okay. Uh, and my site is techdistortion.com. Uh, from there, you can find uh, Pragmatic. It's under podcasts, Pragmatic. And uh, it's also in iTunes as well. If you do a search in iTunes, uh, you'll find it. So, if yeah. And, right, and, and thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on a show that you've listened to for uh, for a while and uh, a chance to interact with you guys, which uh, ordinarily I'm I'm the guy behind the wheel in the car listening to the show and, uh, <laughs> and, and it's a chance to come on and talk to you guys. So, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. It was good talking to you too. I'm normally behind the wheel listening to your podcast <laughs> or taking my lunchtime walks. Right. Well, thank you so much, uh, John, for coming on and joining us. Thank you, guys. Take care now. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.